electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hello and welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. I'm Kelly Evans and ahead this hour, a Goldilocks jobs report, the U.S. adding more jobs than expected while the unemployment rate came down. And if you thought that was good, there's another key number we got today on top of jobs that could be even more important for soft landing hopes. We'll tell you what it is and why it matters. Plus, a fund that can buy everything from blue chips to small caps to high-yield bonds, and it's beating 99% of its peers this year. We'll ask its manager how she's doing it and which names are helping her beat the market. And California is in the midst of a land grab with some of the biggest names in tech taking over the state's Central Valley. We'll tell you what they want to build and where the backlash is coming from. Before that, though, let's get to the markets, which are, what would we call this, Dom, treading water after that report? So treading water, yes, but they are much better than they were at one point earlier on this morning, Kelly. You mentioned the jobs report. I'm sure you're going to be talking about the Michigan sentiment numbers a little bit later on as well. But generally speaking, we've seen a reversal in the markets and we're now modestly higher for the Dow Industrials up about one tenth of one percent, 54 points. The upside, 36,171 for the Dow. The S&P is at 4591, up six points, about one tenth of one percent gain there. We were actually up about 21 points at the highs and down 11 points at the low. So we've seen both sides of that trade so far. And the Nasdaq Composite up about one quarter of one percent. Now, for the week, remember, the S&P 500 is on a five week winning streak. We are just about flat on the week so far right now, so we'll see if that winning streak continues. As for the outperformers and underperformers from a sector perspective this week, it has been consumer discretionary and communication services as two of the better performers. Meanwhile, energy prices continue to be under pressure, and the energy sector is down 3.5% over a one-week period. That's your state of play this week on the sector side of things. And then the stock of the day, one of the best, if not the best-performing stock in the S&P, is a recently beaten down, now trying to respond and rebound media company. Paramount Global is up 14.5% right now. This is on multiple reports at this point that Redbird Capital and Skydance Media could be looking to kick the tires around National Amusements, which is the Redstone-owned company that owns about 77% of the voting stock in Paramount. If that's the case, that's what some of the optimism is about, at least at this point right now. So Paramount Global, that's the reason why it's up 14.5%. But again, treading water is a good way to put it because right now, again, for the week, Kelly, the S&P is almost dead flat. We'll see if the Bulls can make it another winning week or whether or not we break that streak. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. The case for a soft landing looks stronger after a better-than-expected November jobs report. The economy added 199,000 jobs, while the unemployment rate dropped to 3.7%. Even better, and shortly thereafter, we learned that consumer sentiment hit its highest level since July this morning at 694 And importantly, consumers also now expect inflation to be just 3.1% over the next year. That's the lowest such read since March of 2021. Let's dive into the data and the implications for the markets and the Fed now with Diane Swank. She's chief economist at KPMG and our own CNBC senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Great to have you both here. As always, really appreciate it. Diane, you almost nailed it again. 
Jen, what is in your formula? How are you figuring this out? <laughs> Uh, luck, I don't know, but I know I do know that we are going to get more of a rebound from the strikes as we get into July, into December, and I think that's important because all of the plants. It was a cold open as those plants were reopened, and they weren't all the workers weren't all back in the UAW strike. So we'll see more from that. Also from the actor strike, we still have a lot of workers that are going to be called back. So I think December is going to be an even stronger month. And the good news is, even though wages accelerated with the comeback in the motion picture and studio, the motion picture and sound production sector, which was some of that comeback from the Hollywood strike. There was an increase in wages there. We also are going to see more wage increases as we see those UAW contracts kick in. We saw two of their competitors raise wages a minute. Those contracts were actually signed and verified, and I think that's important because that didn't happen until after the survey week. All right, and you thought we were going to get 190K. So, I mean, you were very close. By the way, because even I'm looking through, you thought the unemployment rate would hold steady. Why do you think we dropped to 3.7%? Is that an aberration, or is there, is there real information in that move? I, you know, it was all for all of the right reasons. So first of all, we had a catch up in employment in the household survey that wasn't there last month. So we had a catch up in employment. But we also saw an increase in participation at the same time that the ranks of the unemployed went down. So it was for all the right reasons. We saw prime age. We saw men actually increase their participation rate in teens. This increase in teens has been ongoing. And that's something that, frankly, we've not seen. The peak in the teen participation rate was 1979. Um, back when I was a teen. So it was a long time ago. And I think that's important as well as we're actually seeing some people come back into the labor force that weren't there before. To see that increase in participation is really encouraging. Steve, we did see bond yields move up after the average hourly earnings came in a little better than expected, 423 on the 10-year. You might have thought the markets could kind of gallop off with this narrative of, hey, maybe the Fed has to stay in the picture, except then we got the inflation expectations number, which was way more dovish as, as gasoline prices prices have dropped and maybe does give the Fed some more breathing room here. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to, can I coin a term here, Kelly? What do you think about not Goldilocks, but kind of like silver locks or bronze locks? <laughs> it sounds was, like was an it aged Goldilocks. <laughs> it it, it, like it wasn't 100%. Dad. It's an aging team. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I don't, I don't mean it that way. I just mean it wasn't 100%. I have a really good tolerance, <laughs> It sounds a how, I don't need one, as you can see. Um, it wasn't 100 percent in terms of the inflation story. Wages were a little bit up. Uh, hours worked were higher, which also speaks to tightness. Of course, the unemployment yep. rate fell with an influx, but you put more people to work. So it wasn't 100 percent. I like this. I think it was good for Wall Street and good for Main Street, this number, because at 100, I'm calling it 150,000 because I am taking off the 47,000 or so, which were likely returning strike workers. Um, so call it 150. It's above the influx of workers into the workforce when it comes to the labor force growth. So that still creates some bargaining power, especially for skilled workers. Um, but it's also good for Main Street because it is definitely, or for Wall Street, it's a step down, I think, in terms of job growth. And the Fed can like that. I don't think the Fed's paying a whole lot of attention to the one-year rate. Because you know what the one-year rate is? It's a poll on, when it comes to inflation expectations, it's a poll on gas prices. If you put the two up together, they've got like a 60% yeah. R squared or correlation. So it's not really that big a deal. What is a big deal, maybe more so, is the um, five-year number, which did tick down 2.8. I think the Fed wants to see that 
lower yet, but it's been relatively stable at that level. And if you just look at the outlook for the Federal Reserve and for rate cuts next year, first I'll show you the, the March number. It did come down below 50% in terms of uh, uh, probabilities for a rate cut there. And then also the amount of rate cut built in came down a little bit, though the market, I don't know may still be over its skis a little bit in terms of how much in the way of rate cuts it expects um, next year. We're going to get, I hope, some guidance from Powell next week when it comes to how much we should be thinking about that, or at least how much he's thinking about it. Diane, some of the reactions I saw were, okay, this should definitely keep the Fed in play, or, oh, this should definitely, you know, what is, what is your take on the significance uh, here as they do have to meet next week, and this will be one of the freshest data points? Well, I think the most important issue is that, one, we know there's going to be more of a rebound in terms of employment in the month of December through the strikes and as these workers get called back. And so we, it shows how fragile the economy is on one side of it, that a strike could sort of knock us off and get us up to 3.9 percent unemployment rate in one month in October and then snap back to 3.7 percent the next month. That's good and bad because it does show some fragility that employment gains remain much more concentrated in just three sectors the public sector, healthcare, and leisure and hospitality. The good news for the Fed is that, yes, we see inflation still cooling. It's come down fast. You know, this is remarkable. It's the fastest deceleration in inflation since two world war, since the World War II, Korean War, and the Volcker um, attack on inflation without the unemployment rate. So those are wonderful things. That said, the Fed has to be worried about how resilient are we and how strong is the underlying economy. And I agree 100 percent with Steve that we don't want the bond market getting out too far ahead of their skis and pricing in too many rate cuts. The Fed is going to push back against that. Fed um, Powell, I think the key issue and the key question, Steve, probably is, do they even discuss rate cuts at this meeting? I think Powell's going to go out of his way to make sure they don't discuss rate cuts at this meeting yet so that they can sort of push back and keep the markets yeah, but, from thinking about how many rate cuts a, they're going to have. Steve, last word. He's got, a, he's, he's got a problem, Diane, which is that one of his governors was out there saying it was kind of like I know. an automatic, that if I inflation know. comes that down, the he's Fed has push to cut back. rates. He's, he's got to, well, but here's the thing. Like I said about Waller, he said the quiet part out loud. I don't know how you actually... <laughs> argue against what Waller said. What Waller said was just, I mean, it was just math. I don't think you can repeal that unless you say, look, I believe six months from now, monetary policy needs to be tighter than it is right now. Well, Mr. Chairman, on what basis would that right. be if indeed inflation has fallen? There'd be no rationale for it. So I think he does have to explain himself there. Last time he was asked, yeah. he wouldn't field the question. I don't know that that's an option for him anymore. He said, we're not talking about that. Well, guess what? We're not just talking about it. We're pricing it in now. Exactly. That very well said. Yeah. Well, thank He's you. got to push back a little bit on that. So, And that'll be tricky to thread that needle and without confusing people. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you both. Really, really appreciate it, as always, uh, your reaction to the jobs report Friday. Diane Swank and our own Steve Leesman. Let's switch now back to the markets. While most funds today specialize in certain industries or sectors to maximize returns, my next guest does the opposite with success. Her Allspring Diversified Capital Fund is a go-anywhere fund that can invest in everything from blue chips to small industrials to bonds, and it's outperformed 99% of 
of its peers over the past 15 years. She says flexibility is at the heart of her winning strategy. So what are we buying now? Let's ask Margie Patel, Senior Portfolio Manager for Multi-Asset Solutions at Allspring, as mentioned. Margie, welcome. Thanks. Before we kind of dive into all of this, do you have a reaction to the jobs number today and, and your kind of sense of the the economic landscape and, and the, the, the sort of prospects for Fed action for the next couple of months? Well, once again, we've had a surprisingly strong number. Uh, second quarter, third quarters were surprisingly strong. I think we'll see the same thing in the fourth quarter. And it really shows the resilience of the economy and, frankly, that it is relatively insensitive to the moves of the Federal Reserve. Uh, there's not enough over leverage in the system, in my opinion, with consumers and business, that there really is that much sensitivity to the Fed making these little changes. So I think they're a little flummoxed because the market really hasn't done, or the economy or inflation, what they thought would happen, depending on how they've moved rates from basically zero to, to over 5% in the funds. It just hasn't happened. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. You see growth next year may be more muted than this year, but still strong enough to support high single-digit to low double-digit returns from stocks. Um, and as mentioned, you know, you can kind of do a lot of different things uh, in terms of stock picking here for where you see value. What, what are the things kind of leading the charge for you right now, the best opportunity? Well, I think in general, uh, areas of the market that have growth are going to continue to be leaders, just as they did this year. Uh, there's a lot of hope, I think, by everybody's part, really, that the market broadens out and this isn't just a handful of stocks driving the market. But frankly, I think the broadening out is going to be rather limited. I think it's still going to be limited to those large cap stocks that have proven growth, very high quality ba balance sheets. And uh, the balance, the broadening out is going to be really very selective. Uh, we think in the industrial sector, technology, some of the names that didn't get chosen, and uh, and maybe a little turnaround in healthcare. But basically, we think it's going to be more of the same, a little bit more broadening out, and a little slower, simply because we had such a tidal wave of money, uh, deficit spending that lifted the economy over the last year. Uh, is a reaction to COVID and so forth. And that money's pretty much been played out. So we think we're looking for slower growth in the first quarter. And then I think in half of the year, typical election year, we'll see a big bounce up. Couple moves you made that have helped your outperformance this year. One was you really pulled back on healthcare, which became a pretty crowded consensus thing and has of course underperformed. That was a help. You also were uh, over, sort of over, um, what am I trying to say, more into tech, <laughs> moving more heavily into tech about a year ago. What told you that those two moves were the right moves at the time to make? Well, the main thing was feeling that the economy was not vulnerable, that these interest rate moves were not going to hurt the economy, bring on a recession. If you remember, a year ago, most people were thinking we would have a recession in 23, and we simply haven't. It's nowhere in sight. So we thought economic growth would continue in defensive names like healthcare, especially because healthcare had a lot of roll-up of revenues, COVID-related, and also we're seeing a slowdown in demand really pretty much across the board outside of the U.S., particularly in emerging markets and health. Care. So we thought that it was better to be more in economically sensitive areas, that the defensive areas had individual problems, and we didn't think that they were going to outperform. Yeah, so then looking at 20, your holdings right now, if I'm not mistaken, biggest holdings include Broadcom, Alphabet, AMD, you got Leidos in there, Microsoft, Marvell, Adobe, Motorola. So should we expect a lot of changes for you for 2024? Is, is that a good snapshot of where you think you know, investors should be positioned? 
I really think those are the names that, that are going to carry through next year. Um, I love to look at undervalued stocks, and certainly we've looked at all those sectors that haven't really participated. Uh, they look cheap, but a lot of those companies have problems. Either they have slow demand, they're commoditized, they're dependent on uh, growth from China, which isn't happening. And uh, so we really think you have to look at those sectors, such as technology, some of the industrial related, to really drive the market next year. And quick final question on bonds. Uh, walk us through your thinking there and where, where you know, you're kind of out of step with the market. Uh, well, you know, the I think that the, um, the, the bond market is almost irrelevant to the stock market and Fed moves are really not very relevant to what equities are going to do next year. I think the 10-year and a four and a quarter, five and a quarter even range will be just fine for equity markets. I do think high yield will continue to outperform. One of the conventional wisdom was you want to go for quality in bonds. Turned out you wanted to be in high yield. And I think that'll still be the case economically sensitive bonds in high yield will continue to outperform. All right, Margie, uh, best of luck for 2024. I don't know if you need it. Great write-up in Barron's. Uh, congratulations. We appreciate your time today. Margie Patel. Coming up, Bitcoin's back in the spotlight this week as it hovers around 44,000. But will this bout of optimism translate to real returns for fintech? We'll talk about that next. Plus, did Google take its viral demo video a step too far? We'll tell you what the company's now saying about how it made the video and whether Gemini jumped into the AI race too late. And as we head to break, here's a glance at the markets. We're a little off session highs, but the Dow's up a quarter. Everything's up a quarter percent, basically, as bond yields also move somewhat higher. The uh, 10-year, 423. We're back after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. No matter how many people want to leave crypto for dead, it's come roaring back in recent weeks. Bitcoin up for three straight weeks as it trades now around $44,000, helping Robinhood have its second best week ever as a result. And it's not just crypto where fintech is flourishing. A firm clocking its best month ever in November after seeing record buy now, pay later sales on Thanksgiving weekend. My next guest sees those gains continuing into next year as well. Joining me now is Dan Dolev, senior fintech analyst at Mizuho. Great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks, Kevin. So I guess we should start with, is this, let me just start with the crypto stuff because that's kind of fascinating. It always feels like, you know, if this is the game Robin Hood wants to play, then you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Um, but what is your latest thinking on sort of the success of that platform? How much is crypto? How much is sustainable? That kind of thing. Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. I think crypto, they're a net share gainer in crypto and the data that we that we saw, like in November, they've been gaining share from, from Coinbase. So that's a great thing. To get to the next level, which is what you're asking, I am super bold up on the UK, Europe, 
growth. So it's going to be more of the same, but in other regions and now also in Asia. So that's kind of the next leg, taking all that stuff that you're seeing and putting it into other regions. Why are you so much more optimistic about Robinhood than Coinbase? We've talked about your bearishness there for some time. What's the difference? Yeah, I could not be more bearish on Coinbase. Uh, nothing changed there. So if you think about it, let's just kind of play it out. If you think about the uh, Bitcoin ETF, which is, everyone is excited about, right? Robinhood benefits from that because you could trade the ETF as an equity. For Coinbase, it's net cannibalization plus because you don't need to trade on their platform. You don't anymore. need to trade it. So you know, even take the most astronomical number you can think of, right? Like a trillion dollars in AOM. If they get like two, three basis points off of that, that's probably like five, six percent incremental growth. I'm talking like something crazy. You know, like that's not going to happen. But that's is it's very little incremental to Coinbase, and I don't, and people don't see through that. But what about the people, who, and again, institutionally trading-wise, absolutely see the use for the, the Bitcoin ETF, but what about people who are like, look, it's pretty easy to hold my Bitcoin on crypto. I feel like I own that asset a little bit more securely. It's not just kind of a play on the underlying. Isn't that likely to kind of shore up demand, keep people on that platform? Totally. There's going to be demand for that, but just think about the fee differentials. So Robinhood is charging 34, 35 basis points. That's a third of a percent to trade in and out of Bitcoin, hmm. Coinbase is trading, you know, charging 10x that number. At some point, and this is why I think we're seeing share gains at Robinhood, the market is going to start, or people are going to start understanding, hey, why am I overpaying for trading in and out? Makes no sense. So then that's kind of the rivalry of those trading platforms playing out as we watch wh whatever happens with the price of crypto exactly. Elsewhere, fintech, we mentioned a firm, some of the buy now, pay later stuff. You think that's solidly poised into next year still? Because so many people are raising questions about, you know, whether there's a shoe to drop in the BNPL space. Yeah, and I have a breakthrough thought for you today, as always. Um, a firm is not a buy now, pay later company. Hmm. That was the currency to sit at the table. It's a full-fledged financial services company. They issued a hybrid debit credit card. It went perpendicular. Mm -hmm. Literally, the number of users went from zero to like eight, nine hundred thousand within weeks or months. 2024 is going to be the same, but more. And they're going to get into more services. It's the most innovative name in payments. But I always think once these companies start to, to broaden out from what they were innovative at, then they're just competing with everybody else. And do you, is that really a game that you have deep enough pockets and enough of, you know, can you go up against the, the giants? And it's incremental. So the way I see this, it's incremental because if you use a firm and then you have the card, right, the, the card users use a firm three times more than the non-card users. And then if people put like direct deposit their checks, right? They use it even more. So you're getting like a multiplier effect. So more of the same with very little incremental investment. So 2024 is going to be the year of a firm. Driving you back to the core product. Interesting. Quick, I wanted to mention yeah. this to you because I've seen some chatter online about this. We had talked about the launch of FedNow, the instant payment service at banks, being a potential headwind for all of fintech. But as I understand it, the rollout is incredibly slow. Adoption is very low. Could you just provide a comment on that? Yeah, as you'd expect, anything that the government does takes a long time. I've heard that there's several hundred banks that are already using that. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the impact of Fed now, look at just places, look at places like, you know, Norway. You know, when there's 100% digital and there's a real-time payment rails, eventually, it, you know, it, it takes off, mm -hmm. so it takes time, takes time, but then it takes off. Is so I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of write it off at this point. Does that moderate your bullishness then on the space, broadly speaking, or that's just some of the more exposed players that we've talked about previously? I think it makes me more bullish on the names that can actually innovate, like the affirms of the world, the, the Robin Hoods. It makes me less bullish on names like Visa, which are basically living off of interchange. 
Right. All right. Maybe it will be the year uh, 2024 of many of these changes, inflection points. Dan, as always, thank you. Thank we you. appreciate it. Dan Dolev joining me from Mizuho. Coming up, we've known the wealthy have been leaving high-tax states for years. The pandemic certainly kicked that into high gear. But is it now reverting? We've got new data plus the impact it's having on states like New York. That's next on The Exchange with the Dow Up 88. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. It turns out millionaires who moved out of New York during the pandemic may not have stayed away for that long. Robert Frank brings us the details. Robert? Well, Kelly, a new report from the Fiscal Policy Center saying the wealth flight from New York during COVID was in fact temporary. The report said that New York lost about 430,000 residents between 2020 and 2022. Nearly a third of them were making more than $172,000 a year. Yet by the end of 2022, that out-migration rate for those top earners returned to pre-pandemic levels. Report also saying 2,400 millionaire earners moved out, yet the state created over 17,000 new millionaires, meaning the overall millionaire population actually grew despite that tax hike in 2021. Quote, not only is high tax earner, high earner tax migration largely a myth, the report said, but there's no need to fear for the state's fiscal and economic future. State Controller Tom DiNapoli issuing a contrasting report saying out-migration today still exceeds the pre-pandemic levels. He said given the importance of those high-earning taxpayers, quote, policymakers need to make sure the state remains an attractive, affordable place to work. All this matters a lot right now because New York faces a $4 billion budget deficit next year. Legislators are urging the governor to raise taxes on high earners, Kelly. So, a lot of discussion about these numbers and whether, in fact, a further tax hike in New York would, in fact, result in more out-migration by those very important taxpayers. I mean, don't we only have to look to Florida? It's almost like if you can't measure who's leaving, can't you just measure who's showing up in Palm Beach or who, who lives there now and, and all the economic activity down there? Absolutely. And, you know, this report also said that that most of the out-migration by the wealthy was to other higher tax states. Now, it's true that New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania were big attractions for those New Yorkers moving out. But as your point, the number one destination during COVID 2020 to 2022 for those high earners was, in fact, Florida. And that hasn't changed. And so are they then getting sort of levers remorse or it's not clear yet? Not clear yet. I mean, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of high net worth people that moved to Florida that are sort of saying that Florida is a little boring compared to New York and maybe <laughs> they'll come back. But we haven't we haven't seen a large scale number of people returning. And if you look at the tax rolls, there is still a large number of people that, you know, the, the number of taxpayers today versus pre pandemic is still quite a bit lower. So there's no evidence from a tax perspective that they've come back. All right. Maybe boring. they will. Boring. <laughs> I say too humid. 
you can always find some way to spend your time and money, I would imagine. Anyway, that's great. Robert, thank you for bringing that to us. We appreciate it. Our Robert Frank. Let's get to Bertha Coombs now for the CNBC News update. Bertha? Kelly, the European Union today is adding two senior Hamas militants to its terrorist list, the commander general and deputy commander of the Hamas military wing. Three U.S. Uh, headquarters, the EU headquarters meantime, said that the actions are in response to the October 7th attack on Israel. The union will freeze the funds and European assets of those two leaders. The U.S. also issued new restrictions today. Secretary Blinken said the Treasury and State Departments imposed sanctions and visa restrictions on 37 people across 13 countries, including Afghanistan, China and Iran, over human rights violations. The announcement comes just days before the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And Pope Francis made his first outdoor public appearance since being stricken with bronchitis in November. In honor of today's holiday dedicated to Mary, the Pope arrived at the Spanish Steps and blessed the crowd. He also added a special prayer for Israelis, Palestinians, and the people in Ukraine. Pope Francis turns 87 later this month. Kelly, back to you. Bertha, thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Take, uh, everybody check out shares of a couple of biotechs here on the big news of the day. Vertex Pharma is setting a $2.2 million wholesale price for Casagevi. It's CRISPR treatment for sickle cell anemia. These are the first two CRISPR treatments approved, and they are going to treat this disease. Those shares are trading down about three quarters of 1% on the news of this pricing, which comes just hours after the FDA approved the gene therapy, along with, and this is where it gets extra interesting, Bluebird Bios Lifgenia, which is a similar treatment for the blood disorder. These two treatments are the first CRISPR ones to get FDA approval. Vertex, as we mentioned, down fractionally. Bluebird down sharply. It was halted for trading. It opened down 20%. Then it was halted again. Uh, once again, and can't even tell if it's moving right now. It doesn't look like it is. Again, those shares are below $4. We'll bring you news of it when it continues to reopen. Coming up, this viral video demo of Google's Gemini is facing new scrutiny after the company said it exaggerated some of its features. Are critics overreacting or did Google go too far? We will debate that next. Welcome back. Is Google caught in a Gemini blunder? The company getting called out after acknowledging its big AI reveal video was staged, showing a pre-produced rendition of the technology. The company defending its actions, saying it was intended to be an illustrative depiction. Steve Kovac is here with more. We're also joined by big technology founder Alex Kantrowitz and The Verge's Neelai Patel. Really glad to have you guys all here to kind of hash this out. Steve, let's start with what do we know? As you reported yesterday, Google was forthcoming about the fact that, that this wasn't necessarily a live video, right? It's just that it took people a while, a while to internalize yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I guess they're honest about it in the sense that they had it in some blog posts and some notes on the YouTube video itself. But if you were looking at uh, CEO Sundar Pichai's X account, for example, in the video that he shared, or just the virality of this video that everyone is get, getting so giddy over a couple days ago, you would have known that, and you would have thought this was being this was working in real time the way that Google pitched it as working. But what actually happened was, and Google has said they've done this, is they edited it down so they made it uh, shorter so there's less latency between the query and the response. Okay. 
And beyond that, it, it, instead of actually uh, having the model like look at the image or listen to the voice, they fed it text prompts first and then kind of voiced over that. So Google now kind of having to walk it back and say, oh, this is what it could be like. This is what, you know, when it, with and when we launch this thing, this is what it might be able to do. But right now, it doesn't seem capable. And this is really important because right now, this this Google wants to sell this model part of its cloud business. They want startups using it who are AI startups that need to tap into large language models, maybe looking for something beyond OpenAI or Anthropic to use. They might want to tap into this. Google wants to implement this in its search product, which it's promised will drive more sales and revenue. They want to start selling it through workspaces and Google Docs. But right now, it just doesn't seem like it's ready for prime time. Alex, was the risk worth it because the video was so compelling and now even the, the sort of um, debate about it becomes another round of media. It's very Elon Musk-ish, uh, if I may say. Yeah, I think it absolutely was not worth it. I mean, if you're at Google, how can you release this and think people aren't going to catch on the next day? And the broader point here is that it shows how Google thinks about itself internally. It's seeing all these companies, Microsoft, Meta, NVIDIA, go to town on the transformer model, technology that it developed, and it's behind. And so now it's doing this uh, uh, video that shows that it's done this revolutionary upgrade, where really what it's done is evolutionary. It just shows the mindset within Google. We're behind. We need to show the public something amazing. And it just went way beyond where it should have. And now it looks even worse than it did in the beginning. Uh, uh, Neelai, what do you think? Was the risk, risk worth taking because they got so much more extra buzz out of it? No, I think Google was in a position where it, it felt like it needed to catch up to OpenAI. But I will just remind everyone, OpenAI was doing a pretty good job of making itself pretty messy. Like, you didn't need to <laughs> shoot yourself in the foot this way. Uh, on top of that, you know, Google's pitch here is that Gemini is natively multimodal. That's what this video is trying to show you. You can communicate with this model in both video, in audio, in text, and it will generate all this stuff back at you in, on all these forms as well. Uh, uh, Demis Asabis, who runs Google DeepMind, uh, said to The Verge and to other outlets, we can even get, you can see how you get, get to robotics with this thing, where it's looking at a picture and a robot arm is doing stuff. The reality, though, is that the version of Gemini you can use today in Google Bard is just a chatbot, and it does not appear to be a very good chatbot. It hallucinates more than ChatGPT hallucinates. It answers problems in a less good way than ChatGPT does today. So even from the have we caught up to GPT-4 in chatbot form, it's not there. And then we're lying about whether or not it's multimodal or shading the truth about whether or not it's multimodal. This does seem like a pretty big cell phone. What about the share price reaction, Alex, which is to say it was up more than 6% yesterday. It's down a, a percent or two today, but it, it's nothing like the disaster and the debacle we've seen in past kind of awkward launches or when investors were concerned. So maybe they still feel like, hey, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if investors were buying off of that video, they've made a real big mistake. If investors are buying because they now see that Google has a product in market that could compete with GPT-4 and potentially cater to Google Cloud Platform customers who already have their data and can bring that in and start to use these products, that's a much more reasonable uh, approach. But I, I honestly think that the marketing did play a role in here, and there's probably people buying where they shouldn't be. Neelai, what would you add, especially for the investing public? I, Google has a, a big business model problem to solve. All of its money comes from search, and these models are going to undo that business model over time. The idea that you're going to insert advertising into a list of links in some way 
right? It's it's just going to crash directly into the AI is going to tell you the answer. And I, I think Google has to get these models out in front of the public, understand how people are going to use them, understand where the commercial opportunities are beyond that Google Cloud Enterprise uh, stuff that Alex is talking about. The consumer business, they have to develop. So that there's a huge push at Google to make sure they do it first before OpenAI does it, before Amazon does it, before Microsoft does it with Bing, if you believe that that is a real possibility. Yeah. That said, they don't have to get this far out over their skis because of perceived pressure. That search business is fine right now. And Steve, I just keep thinking, is there because I absolutely agree that this is where it's obvious this is where oh, totally. the next generation of technology is going. Couldn't they just do something where the Google landing page has a central chat feature and still has, you know, five blue links on the left <laughs> and five blue links on the right or whatever? They're sort of trying to do that. They call it the search generative experience or SGE. And some people are already beta testing it right now. And it's kind of, you know, you'll make a search. Who is Kelly Evans at CNBC? And it'll give you kind of a generated description. It's not very good right now. It's based on an old model. The idea is that they're going to be able to incorporate this new model if they can get this new model working. And that will, in theory, they say, boost their search business, boost people searching on Google, which, of course, is good for their ad business, which is what they are. But again, to Neil's point, it's also like unclear how that really plays into search, whether it's good enough to get people searching or just using the chatbot itself. And then not to, you know, cannot go on a whole tangent, but this does also raise the issue which Ben Thompson was writing about this week, which is when you also have AI now generating a lot of internet pages right. that are diluting and trying to ruin the SEO experience for legitimate companies. It's like the whole thing is eating itself. Exactly. And you can understand why people are a little unnerved. We'll leave it there for now, gentlemen. Thank Thanks. you all. Steve Kovac, Alex Kanchowitz, and Neelai Patel. And up next, a sun-kissed community. A a vision of utopia coming about in California, a new community with the goal of being 100% environmentally friendly, but it's already facing backlash. Scott Cohn will have that story. Scott? Uh, hey, Kelly. It is either the community of the future, or it's a tech bro land grab, or it's why we can't have nice things. We are going to introduce you to the investors that want to transform this land and why some of the locals are saying, eh, we're good. That's coming up when the exchange continues. Welcome back, everybody, and take a look at shares of Bluebird Bio, which uh, were down 20 percent before being halted, reopened, and are now down at 1.40 percent. Again, this all happening on a day in which the FDA has approved two new CRISPR therapies for sickle cell anemia. We'll have more next hour, but as we understand it, one concern for investors here could be that Bluebird's uh, product has a black box warning about the risk of cancer and the, was already facing concerns that wouldn't be terribly competitive. Again, we'll have more details next hour. Bluebird is trading under $3 a share today. Meantime, a new California utopia or a tech bro land grab? That's the question surrounding a new city aiming to be environmentally friendly, solar powered, and a sustainable vision of the future. Scott Cohn brings us more. Scott? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, we're roughly midway between San Francisco and Sacramento. As you can see, not a whole lot here yet, but just wait. This site is huge, some 60,000 acres. So that's roughly the size of the city of Milwaukee, although they say that the community they want to build here is much smaller. A secretive group brought up, brought up this land slowly over five years when the New York Times finally outed them earlier this year turned out to be a who's who in tech and venture capital. We're talking Mark Andreessen, Reid Hoffman, John Doerr, and more, led by a former Goldman Sachs trader, Jan Schrammick. He says that job was devoid of meaning. This, he says, will be a walkable, livable community. But whatever you do, he says, don't call it a utopia. 
It shouldn't be a utopia that we're trying to build a community where everyday Californians can afford to buy a home and where kids can walk to school and people can go to a grocery store. I mean, that, that's not a utopia, that's just a good town. But for all the business brains behind this, they are not accustomed to the kind of backlash that this has sparked. It's been huge at town halls like this one last night. Even the local Sierra Club calls this supposedly environmentally friendly development a hostile takeover. The danger for me is that it becomes about uh, dollar signs, right? Well, how much do you contribute? You can't put a dollar amount to what farmers do, what generational farming has done for our country, right? We all need uh, food. The group will still need voter approval uh, next November uh, to change a county ordinance that protects ag land. If that does not go through, these, these folks will have, be stuck with a whole lot of land and decide what to do with it. Kelly? Is there anything else they could do? What more do we know about the group backing this project? Yeah, we're told that all of those big names are passive investors here, but as they were slowly buying up this land under a, a company called Flannery Associates, it sparked a lot of concerns, including from the local congressman here, Democrat John Garamendi, because this site, part of it, borders on Travis Air Force Base. So there was a lot of concern about, is there foreign investment here? Uh, the group says no, it's 97%. U.S. investors, a handful of, uh, of U.K. and Ireland. The Treasury Department has been looking into the foreign connections. The other thing that's been going on here is that they've had to take some of the local landowners to court. They claim that they illegally colluded to jack up the prices. So all of these tech luminaries are facing some good old-fashioned business hardball. That's right. There were some concerns that maybe the Chinese were using it to spy on that air base, as you mentioned. A lot of questions still to be answered. Scott, thank you for bringing us that story. We appreciate it. Sure. Our Scott Cohn reporting. Still to come, a semi-charmed market. Whether it's AI, gaming, or EVs, semis have dominated the market this year. The SMH ETF having its best year since 2019. But should investors jump into the names leading the pack or bet on the underdogs? We'll find out in three buys and a bail next. Welcome back, everybody. From powering AI to driving EVs, semiconductors are certainly having their moment in the sun this year. But will 2025 bring a change? 2025. I'm already ahead. Will 2024 bring a changing of the guard? Who should you stick with and where should you bail? Let's find out in today's three buys into bail, semiconductors edition. Quint Tatro is here with our trades. He's Jewel Financial. Oh, Santa. He's Jewel Financial's founder and see. Is this belated St. Nick Day or early Christmas, uh, Quint? This is early Christmas, Kelly. We're talking about some uh, some Merry Christmas semi-cheer here. You have several that you're bullish on. We'll start with AMD, which is flat after rising 10% yesterday on that new AI chip that is said to rival NVIDIA's. The CEO is saying the company now believes the total market for their chips could, or AI chips could climb to $400 billion over the next four years, twice as high as they thought. Why stick with this one? Yeah, Kelly, so out of the reindeer, we're going to call this one Dasher. So AMD trading 34 times forward earnings, growing those earnings at 42%, not including the uh, new AI chip. Company has almost no debt, $6 billion in cash. Yes, it's had a, a strong move recently, but still 20% off highs. We do think this one will be dashing to those highs 
in the near future. All right. Let's see who's next. It's called Micron. It's got a five-day losing streak yesterday that it snapped, and the shares are up 1% today as they're trying to string together some gains. They did recently boost revenue guidance for fiscal Q1, thinking revenue could be $4.7 versus $4.4 billion previously. But they also warned about higher operating expenses. Why do you like Micron? Yeah, Kelly, Micron's a turnaround. This one's going to be, in our opinion, dancing to high. So this is our dancer in the Rudolph uh, theme that we've got 13.21 forward earnings, uh, turning those earnings around to profitability. A company really has been a strong compounder historically with a return on invested capital historically over 20%. Very strong balance sheet, $10 billion in cash, and it has had a pullback. But this one, again, is a buy for us. And this is our our dancer, which will eventually, we believe, head towards highs into the next year. I'm trying to guess who's Rudolph. I don't know. Maybe it's our next one, NVIDIA. It's been leading the way. The stock has been on a tear. It's up 225 percent. Best performer of the whole Magnificent Seven, let alone the semis. Piper Sandler just named it its top large cap pick. So they're sticking with it into the next year. And you are, too? Yeah, and you nailed it. This is Rudolph. This is the one that's going to shine. This is going to be one that shines the way for the rest of the semis here. And look, it's had a strong move. Obviously, it's been the standout. But 22 times forward earnings, and those estimates are for 70% growth. Very little debt, $18 billion in cash. And here's the deal, Kelly. If you're nervous about those reindeer games, just place a stop at 400 and you'll sleep cozy in front of the fire. All right. Forward PE 27. It's still remarkable to see that uh, on the screen. Okay, so those are your three buys. There is one to bail on of this sort of larger semi-bunch, though, and it's Texas Instruments, which is already down 5% this year. So some might want to get in here thinking it'll play catch up. It's a pretty stark contrast to the likes of NVIDIA and AMD and Micron. Why would you not uh, see uh, this as a value play? instead telling people stay away. Yeah, so despite all the goodness, we can't we can't go get hopped up on the eggnog and think everything is a buy here. You're spot on. Uh, this one really is is just in a in a downtrend uh, in a in a sector, the analog space that's going to we feel, uh, you know, be struggling for some time. Twenty four uh, times forward EPS is what we have. And those EPS are are, are falling. I mean, they're in decline. Uh, so it's in in reference a very, very expensive stock, despite being 20 percent off of 2021 highs. We, we mark this one as the Grinch and we would stay away. Would you since everyone and their mother loves Broadcom? What, I'm just going to throw that one out there. Would you would that be in the portfolio? So I have been wrong on Broadcom for a long time, but I have stayed away because of the debt level. We don't like the debt level on Broadcom. It has come down over the years, but that's been a concern of ours, and we're very fundamental-based. So balance sheet's always a big big key for us. So we, we, don't, we don't put that in the mix. There's a lot of small and mids that are out there that are very attractive as well if people want to do their digging for, for the, the sort of the, the gold that's out there and stay away from the charcoal. All right, Quint, making it fun today. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Quint Tatro, Nick. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.